0: All right, man, it's so great to be back with you all. How about that extra hour of sleep? Yeah, my wife woke me up at 4.30 this morning, and she said, do you have your alarm set? I go, yeah, I got it set. I said, your phone does it automatically. She goes, does it? Which planted doubt in my mind, so I got up at 4.30 this morning. Whether you're joining us online or you're here in the room, man, it's just so so great to be with you today and great to worship with you all. I was actually uh, with Sam, the worship leader, last weekend. In Las Vegas, uh, we weren't playing blackjack, we were at a church, and uh, it was, it's always great to hang with him. And, uh, and I just want to say before I get rolling today, I have so much love and respect for Nate Ross. He is a what-you-see-is-what-you-get kind of guy. Um, I love him, man, uh, and, and I love his dad. I've, I've known George. George is an old, a really old friend. That I've known a long time. Two of the best men that I've ever known in my life. And you guys have such a great team here. There's so many godly, uh, humble men and women here who genuinely love God. And I've been around church for a long time. Uh, And the authenticity and the honesty and the vulnerability at this place is just so refreshing. Uh, So I know that God's going to continue to do great things here. And I'm just honored that you would let me hang with you this weekend. And I love this time of year. I'm a basketball junkie, so I love March Madness. Uh, it's the most wonderful time. I, mean, I, love, I love March Madness, but the best time, but the best part about this time of year, even though I love basketball, is Easter. It is the most significant thing that's ever happened in the history of mankind, and I can't wait to be back with you to celebrate that important event. Well, we've been working through the uh, Quest 52 along the way this year. And next weekend, uh, George is actually going to unpack one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible. You need to invite somebody for that because it's going to be so good. But this weekend, I want to talk about tables. Anybody else besides me love to eat? Yeah, right there. You know, as a culture, we're pretty serious about our food. We All kinds of TV shows about cooking. There's even like a food network. Uh, We have all kinds of different ways to eat, whether it's keto or Whole30 or Mediterranean or DASH diets, podcasts about all of them in our country. We even have eating competitions. Did you know there are actually professional leagues for competitive eating? Now, I'm sure you've seen the whole you know, 4th of July hot dog eating contest with Joey Chestnut and those guys. I mean, ESPN has it now as like a big event. They choke down hot dogs at alarming rates. Uh, But there's lots of other different food competitions. Did you know there's also a crawfish eating competition? Now, my my last name is Bro, and it's spelled B-R-E-A-U-X. So, it's a Cajun name. So, who knows? I might be really good at that crawfish thing, but I'll never find out. I'm, or how about this one? The onion-eating competition, anybody want to sign up for that one? I mean, just tear up thinking about it, right? Or what about this one? The fruitcake-eating competition. Not in a million years, fruitcakes are so gross. And speaking of gross, there's actually a mayonnaise-eating competition. The world record for the most mayonnaise consumed in a single sitting is four 32-ounce bowls eaten in eight minutes. I want to bar thinking about it. We Americans, we really do love to eat. We eat about 21 times a week, not counting snacks. We order Grubhub, DoorDash so we can eat in front of our TV or while we play video games. We do a whole lot of eating, but we're doing a whole lot of it alone. You know, one of the values in my home growing up was dinner around the table. It wasn't so much about the food as it was the people around the table. And as Debbie and I raised our, our, our kids, we made sure that we were around the table a lot. It wasn't always possible, but most nights we'd throw something on the grill or we'd throw something in the crock pot or we'd order some pizza and we'd sit around the table together as, as a family. We have a lot of memories around the table. So many friends, so many neighbors small groups, extended family, uh, you know, kids basketball teams showing up around the table. I don't remember any of the actual meals that we consumed there, but the laughter and the storytelling and, the, and the, some of the conversations that were shared, some of the announcements that were made around that table are absolutely unforgettable. Did you know that studies show that eating with people has enormous benefits. For instance, research shows that when children and teenagers eat regularly with their families around the table, they experience healthier eating habits all the way into adulthood. They have less drug and alcohol use. They have a higher self-esteem and less depression. They do better in school posting higher test scores, and again, it's not about the food. It's about the table. It's about the community. It's about the sense of belonging. That gets fostered there. There's just something about being around a table. I was thinking how Jesus, being a carpenter, I probably made all kinds of stuff. Like yeah, I'm sure he framed houses, he made ladders, he made bookcases, chairs, probably even a, a table or two. And even though he never really owned one, he made sure he was around other people's tables a lot. See, Jesus recognized the importance of eating together in fact he was very intentional about it he spent time around the table with people like Lazarus and Mary and Martha and Simon the leper and Simon the Pharisee and Zacchaeus he performed his very first miracle at a wedding feast he fed 5,000 people on a hillside the night before his crucifixion guess where he was he was around a table with his guys his closest friends and then after the resurrection he shared breakfast with them around the campfire on a beach Now, as people in this culture who scarf down Egg McMuffins while driving our car with our knees, I'm not sure we're really capable of grasping just how central eating was to life back in Jesus' day. But it was a big deal in that culture. You see, eating with someone was a statement that said, I want to be with you. I want to hang with you eating with someone was an affirmation of that person's value it affirmed their dignity and their worth in fact who you ate with indicated who you liked who you cared about who you considered as part of your social class who you considered as part of your like family circle that's why it was so outrageous to the religious leaders that Jesus frequently ate with the lowest and most despised people of his day. They would say to him, come on. If you were really from God, you wouldn't hang out with those kind of people. Matthew was one of those kind of people. He was a tax collector. He worked for the Roman government, which was the enemy of the Jews. He he wasn't accepted by anybody. Outside of his despised group, the Romans looked down on him and used him. His own people saw him as a patriotic sellout. Guys like him were looked at as like the scum of the earth. But one day Jesus says two life-changing words to Matthew. He says, follow me. Well, Matthew accepts the invitation to follow. And the first thing he does is throw a dinner party he opens up his home he opens up his fridge he opens up his table and invites Jesus and the disciples over to hang and I just think it's really cool that Matthew himself actually writes this down in his account of the life of Jesus and I bet as he was writing this down in chapter 9 of Matthew I bet he got choked up a little bit look look what he writes it says as Jesus was walking along he saw a man named Matthew in other words he's saying Jesus was walking along he saw me sitting at my tax collector's booth. Follow me, be my disciple, Jesus said to me. Then he writes, so Matthew got up and followed him. Later Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I've come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners. I mean, this is so cool to me. The first thing that Jesus does after Matthew says yes to his invitation was not to enroll him in a class on how to become a better disciple he doesn't challenge Matthew right away to start studying the Bible and memorizing scripture now don't get me wrong those things are very important but the first thing Jesus does he goes to Matthew's house to eat with him because by eating with him he was saying You have been rejected, you have been scorned, you have been looked down upon everybody in your world, but you need to know you are accepted, you have value, you belong. The maker of the universe chooses to eat with you. Now, did you catch the term sinner in those verses? We're going to see that pop up again next week. But in Jesus' day, the word sinner was kind of a derogatory catch-all label for anybody who wasn't uh, religious, or perhaps somebody who was involved in something like prostitution. So here is Jesus, God in the flesh, eating with the most despised and looked down upon people of his day. And man, as you're working through like the Q52 book and the gospels, I hope that you're perhaps getting a more accurate picture of what God is really like. You see, the people who were least like Jesus, liked Jesus. And Jesus, like them. Well, the Pharisees, the leaders of the religious establishment, they're so offended by this scandalous dinner party. So they don't ask Jesus face to face. Do you catch how they pull a disciple or two aside? They go, hey, why does your teacher eat with, with such scum? The, these tax collectors and these, these sinners. Well, Jesus overhears them, or he already knows what they're going to say. And I don't know if this is the case or not, but I like to picture Jesus like food hanging out of his mouth, you know? And he responds, hey, it's, it's not, the, not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now, Jesus is not saying that the Pharisees were healthy, good people who didn't need a doctor. He alludes to them being lost in their sense of self-righteousness. And then he says, go and really learn what this means. I desire mercy, God says, not, not offer like religious sacrifice. But Jesus is quoting the Old Testament here, which the Pharisees were known for knowing backwards and forwards. They were all-stars at performing all these religious rituals. But while they were busy keeping all their rules and putting labels on people, they were ignoring the poor and the vulnerable and the marginalized. So Jesus says to them, you know, you know what God says. That is our mercy, not sacrifice. But you don't really know what that means because if you do, you, you certainly aren't living it out. See, Jesus was on mission with his life. And the Pharisees just didn't get it. And this tension between Jesus and the Pharisees over who Jesus ate with was not just like an isolated incident. They were on him all the time about it. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus calls out their criticism when he says the son of man, which is one of Jesus' favorite ways of referring to himself, the son of man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. Now, the truth is Jesus was not a drunk and Jesus was not a glutton, but he so frequently ate with people who were that he got accused of it a lot. Gang, what we see in Jesus' life is that being around the table with other people was just integral to his mission. Jesus was, let's call him a missional eater. He touched people's lives by just sharing meals with them. I like what Henry and the late Henry Nowen writes, he says, when we invite friends for a meal, we do much more than offer them food for their bodies. We offer friendship. Fellowship, good conversation, intimacy, and closeness. When we say, help yourself, take some more, don't be shy, have another glass, we, we offer our guests not only our food and drink, but also ourselves. A spiritual bond grows, and we become food and drink for each other. When we eat together, we're doing more than just simply sharing a meal. We're like living on mission. You know how real estate say that the... Uh, the kitchen is what sells a house, right? You, you ever watch one of those HGTV shows like House Hunters, and the person walks in, and they go, "Oh, this kitchen is to die for! I love the cabinets, I love those countertops. I can see everybody where they're going to sit, and I can prepare over there. It's a significant room. People just love to hang in the kitchen." I was talking with a single girl on one of the staffs at one of the churches I serve, and she invited a bunch of people. And friends, uh, some, some neighbors, some, some pretty far from God. She kind of threw a Matthew party at her little house. And she kind of has this uh, cool, uh, I don't know, loft, attic feel vibe to her house. And she said, I could not get people out of the kitchen. I cleaned my entire place, had candles going, fluffed all the pillows on my couches. They spent the entire night sitting on the countertops. And I think that says something about her. It says she has the ability to make people feel really at home, and just like Jesus, people could sense that she genuinely likes them, that she values real community. They feel like they can just be themselves around her. Her kitchen and her life both feel like a safe place where people can belong. There's this famous study from Harvard very comprehensive study of 7,000 people over a nine-year period. The study indicated that connection and belonging is huge to a person's life. In fact, the most isolated people are three times more likely to die from any cause than those who maintain strong relational connections. One of the leaders of that research was a guy named Robert Putman who wrote in his book Bowling Alone, if you belong to no groups but decide to join one, you cut your risk of dying over the next year in half. Which is why we say at Northside, join a group or die. I'm not, we don't say that, just, just kidding. But that is pretty staggering, right? They, they also found that the value of community, the value of regularly being around a table with other people was a stronger indication of a healthy lifestyle than diet and or exercise. In fact, people who had bad health habits but strong social ties lived significantly longer than those who had great health habits but had no meaningful connection in their life. Which leads this researcher to say, better a Krispy Kreme with friends than a salad alone. Can I get an amen, right? You know, what? we don't need a bunch of research to realize people are lonely these days. They're just lonely. You know, I, I learned how to play guitar. Taught myself. Uh, taught myself five chords. I still know five chords. Uh, my first song I ever played on the guitar was Wasted Away Again" in Margaritaville. A proud moment for a pastor, I know. But uh, but I sat down. I sat down with a with a book called "The Great Hits of the 70s." And they had the fingering charts over the over the notes and stuff. And the first song I ever attempted to play was a song by the Beatles called Eleanor Rigby. Have you ever, ever heard this song? Well, it started with an E minor, so I put my fingers on the on the appropriate strings and the fret, and I started playing da 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 da. that's how I learned to play. But the chorus of that song is haunting of course that song says, oh, look at all the lonely people. Where do they all come from? Oh, look at all the lonely people. Where do they all belong? They belong around a table. They need to be included in a family circle. Anybody been to Redwood National Forest? Ever ever done that? It's on my bucket list. I love to go. We've lived in Southern California for eight years before we just moved back to Kentucky. Uh, Never got to go, but I really want to. And one of these days, I'm going to go. But I did some pretty intensive research on redwood trees. Okay, I Googled it. But did you know that these huge trees that soar up to 300 feet tall, they have a root system that only goes five or six feet deep? I mean, that shocked me. But here's what's really cool about the redwood trees. The redwood roots all intertwine with each other's roots. They extend out, uh, outward to like a 100 feet circumference from the trunk. Each tree is supported and sustained by the larger, wider system of intertwining roots from all the other trees. And that's what gives them the stability to soar high into the sky. Think there might be a lesson in there for us? One of the most glaring things to come out of the past few years with all the lockdowns and masking up and divisions and cancel culture and loneliness and isolation, is man, we need each other. We were created to do life together. The intertwining roots is the genius of God's design. We're supposed to see each other smile. We're supposed to feel each other's touch. We're supposed to embrace each other is absolutely vital to our growth. God built within each one of us the need for human connection. He wove that into the fabric of our being. He created us to be together. And guess what? He wants to be right in the middle of it all, sitting on the countertops, eating around the table with us. I like the way Dallas Willard once wrote, he said, God's aim in human history is the creation of this inclusive community of loving persons with himself included as its primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. I, I remember the first time I was invited to go tailgating at a college football game. Atmosphere was electric. Electric. Uh, the parking lot around the stadium smelled like, you know, hamburgers and brats on charcoal grills. People throwing football back and forth, throwing frisbee back and forth. They're singing the fight song, and then once inside the stadium, and high-fiving each other, and hugs and chest bumps, extreme joy, all centered around a common love and passion for their team. I mean, it was fun, but I know now how much stronger and real. An inclusive community gets when God is the center of it all and gang that kind of community that's not seasonal it's not based on win loss records or the weather it's constant and it's rich and it's vibrant and it's fulfilling it's community with a common purpose that goes way beyond like 16 games It's people like you and me just growing together and serving together and opening up our homes and opening up our tables and opening up our wallets and just making a difference where we live with our loving creator right in the middle of it all sitting around the table with us. You know, a huge part of the explosion of the early church was the amazing community that went on. And they got it all from the example of Jesus around a table. They called it the koinonia. You might have heard that term before. It's a Greek word that just meant the shared life. And it was not some weird, oppressive, cultish commune kind of thing, but this joy-filled, together kind of place where people could just belong and experience deep friendship with God and with each other. You see, the society of their day was one full of hate and elitism and segregation and religious and political oppression. But these followers had seen Jesus around tables And they decided, we're going to do the same thing. Look what's written about this brand new community. Acts chapter 2 says, "...and all the believers met together constantly and shared everything they had. They sold their possessions and shared the proceeds with those in need, like my fridge is your fridge, whatever you need." They worshiped together at the temple each day. Times of corporate worship like this. They made it a priority to show up and gather together. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They remembered Jesus whenever they got together. And they shared their meals with great joy and generosity. Opened up their tables. They got intentional about eating with other people. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their group those who were being saved. It began to explode around tables. The authentic community was like this breath of fresh air. It was real. It was raw. It was relational. It wasn't even really well organized. It was just very organic. It wasn't their marketing strategy. It wasn't their discipleship program. It was simply a place of joy and food and generosity, a place brimming with grace and truth, a sense of purpose, goodwill, acceptance, and belonging, oneness and love. At one of the churches that I used to serve, we had a small group who decided to get intentional about this stuff, and they wanted to get to know their neighbors, and they wanted to like, open up their tables and get to know people. So they decided that they were going to throw a, a barbecue, and they printed up these flyers and put it in everybody's mailbox and said, you are invited to the first annual such-and-such neighborhood barbecue. And They put the date and where it was going to be at the neighborhood park. And it said on the flyer, hamburgers and hot dogs will be provided. Drinks will be provided. If your last name is A through L, bring such and such. If it's M through Z, bring this. We'll have games for kids and adults. Let's just get to know each other. And they wondered if anybody would show up. They began to worry that the six of them might be eating hundreds of hamburgers and hot dogs. They ended up having to make a run to the grocery store because 176 people showed up, most of whom had never met each other. And they had so much fun, so much laughter, so many stories. And one of the stories that come out of it was about that house. You, you know the house I'm talking about, that house in the neighborhood that doesn't mow their grass, and, you know, shingles are hanging, and it's just like it needs, needs some work. You know, you, know, you know, that house. They met who owned that house. Single mom with three kids whose husband was killed in Afghanistan. So the neighbors, now knowing the situation, they all pull together, fix the shutters, fix the gutters, they mow, they re landscape, they just poured out love on this family. And it all started around hamburgers, hot dogs, and potato salad. Someone just wanted to get intentional about the table, like Jesus did. So I want to challenge you, take a risk on friendship. Open up your home, open up your table, your kitchen, go over and chat with your neighbor, fire up the grill, get to know them. And just see what God might do in their life, in your life. I mean, just picture a world where people are eating with and talking to and learning from and listening and laughing and connecting and crying with one another. That's the picture that Jesus painted with his life around the table. In their book right here, right now, Alan Hirsch and Lance Ford write this. Sharing meals together on a regular basis is one of the most sacred practices we can engage in as believers. Missional hospitality Missional hospitality is a tremendous opportunity to extend the kingdom of God. If every Christian household regularly invited a stranger or a poor person into their home for a meal once a week, we would literally change the world by eating. There's power around the table where love and belonging are offered up as a main course. My wife Debbie has the gift of hospitality and she is an extrovert that is fueled by people. She loves tables full of food, and she loves tables full of people. She hates to see anybody lonely. Her her favorite verse of Scripture in the entire Bible is Psalm 68, verse 6, that says, God places the lonely in families. He sets the prisoners free and gives them joy. Her favorite quote is one from Mother Teresa, which says, the problem with the world is that we draw our family circles way too small. She likes drawing big circles. way Jesus did we have this thing that we just just call Sunday lunch because that's what it is it's lunch on Sunday Uh, sometimes we got 10 of us that show up sometimes there's 40 that show up we never really know who might show up and just make a bunch of food and if we don't eat it all we eat it on Monday and Tuesday Uh, it could be a random person that shows up that we met uh, at church or maybe we met them on the ball field or maybe we met them at a a restaurant Uh, but people just show up and come and and they just kind of hang out and eat good food and nothing fancy, just some people take naps. It's cool to look around, somebody's over there asleep on the couch and somebody's watching a ball game and kids are outside playing and somebody's watching a movie in the other room and some people around a table playing cards. It's it's, It's a generational thing. Her mom did it, her mom's mom did it. So every Sunday we're in town, we just have Sunday lunch. I can remember when Deanna first moved in with us. She was, she was a girl we'd met out in Southern California who desperately needed a change of scenery and a recovery program uh, that would be transformational in her life. She came to Central Kentucky to a place called the Refuge for Women, which is a ministry for those who have been trafficked in some way. She would graduate from the program and then move in with us for a few years. She's been sober now for 10 years. She's now married to a pastor. They have twin girls. Just released her second book I mean, what God has done in her life has just been miraculous. But I can remember when she first showed up and how she would sit there at those Sunday lunches and just kind of observe, because it was so foreign to her. I mean, she, she's told us. She didn't know what to think, because she watched her mom slit her own wrists. Um, her dad bailed out on them. She hit the streets at a very young age. Looking for love, as they say, in all the wrong places. Got deeply involved in the sex industry. Uh, Became a porn star. All kinds of addictions. Just a rough life. No one really to call her family. Her favorite verse in the Bible comes from a little obscure uh, book called Joel in the Old Testament of the Bible where God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you back all the years the locusts have eaten. And it's so cool to watch him do that for her. She wrote a little spoken word piece uh, and told me I could share it with y'all. She calls it, God restores my idea of family. She writes, screaming, hitting, leaving me behind or bloody towels and razors I would find. A mom so sick just wanted to give up while endless wine filled up her cup. A dad who tried to keep it all together who promised through adoption to stay with us forever only to find he would lose his wife. And late at night try to make sense of his life searching for a family to let me in. I would run away and try to begin the process of blending in only to be thrown away again. Bouncing in and out of people's lives, dodging abuse and the great pain that thrives. The church decides to take an interest in me, saying, God wants you home. Come and see what it's like to be loved while you rest and be. Come heal your heart. This year is free. After years of families who are in each other's face, I sit back and think, what is this place? I dine with this family of 20 or more, filled with joy each week, no one looks for the door. I know it'll take time for this all to make sense For now I'll let down my wall so I can see over the fence. This is what happens when generations are set free by the love of Jesus, the one and only key. The time has come, and here is that hour that God restores what the locusts devoured. God places the lonely in families. He sets the prisoners free and fills them with joy. What do you think it would look like if our apartment complexes, the lobby of our dorms, the the park, our homes, our kitchen tables became hubs for belonging? What if you and I would become missional eaters like Jesus? What if we intentionally began to draw our family circles bigger? I believe we'd make a difference in this world. Yeah, even though he never owned one, Jesus made sure he was around someone's table a lot. And you know what? He wants to be around your table too. He wants to connect with you, wants to hang with you, wants to eat with you, wants to give you a sense of belonging, and he's just waiting for the invite. So why don't we bow our heads and just pray for a moment. You know, maybe right now uh, you can just invite him over. Say, Jesus, I want to do like Matthew did. I just want to invite you to my house. I want to invite you to my life. And I want you to come in. I want you to eat with me and be with me and do life with me. I I need your forgiveness. I need your sense of belonging. I want to live forever. I want you to lead my life. Right, Right now, you could pray all that in your own way. He's just been waiting for you to invite him in. And Jesus, I'm so grateful that you respond to invitations like that. When we humble ourselves, you come in, and you eat with us, and you sit with us, and you cry with us, and you listen to us, and you lead us, and you challenge us, and you comfort us, and you give us a peace that you can't even explain to somebody. Thank you for doing all that. And I thank you that you, you gave us the example of being around tables with other people. And God, it's my prayer that, that this family would get bigger and bigger because we're drawing our family circles bigger and bigger, that when we go out of this place and we do our lives this week, that we would get intentional about just eating with other people, eating together and seeing what you do in the midst of all of it, that you're right there in the middle of all of it. Thank you for being there. And I pray all this in your name. Amen. Hey, guys, thanks for coming today. If you need prayer for anything today, just stay seated, and we'd love to find you. But have a great rest of the week. See you back next week.